Hey, do you enjoy Geeks of Grimdark? Do you wish we produced more Warhammer content? Well, check out our ongoing series with this week's sponsor, Shooting the Shit with Chippa. Axel and I have a reoccurring series with host Chris Shipman, where we introduce him to 40k factions one at a time. And once you're all caught up with that, check out all the rest of his amazing interviews on your favorite podcasting site today. Hello and welcome back to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always is... The Shield Brother, Axel Wright. How goes it? You know, it's ups and downs. Uh, up because my personal life is going pretty well right now. Down because I'm in the middle of moving. I'm literally... Because of uh, internet won't be available at my new place until Saturday... I am literally sitting in a completely empty apartment right now on the floor with my computer. <laughs> moving sucks. That is the one advantage of being a homeowner. Theoretically, you will never have to move again. Mm, no, I know I'm going to have to move again because of certain things that make make it. Point is, I get what you mean. It doesn't apply in my situation. <laughs> okay, you shouldn't have to move for a considerably long time. Fair enough. How are you doing? Uh, all in all, pretty good. I mean, we're waiting to see if we're going to get snow and it's still shut down the entire, I don't want to say state, but region I live in because they don't know how to deal with snow out here. No, there's a huge, at time of recording, polar vortex moving down that's going to plunge the middle of the country into, you know, sub-zero temperatures. Neat. (laughs) Yeah, so our uh, Midwest listeners, don't go outside. It's not worth it. Fair enough. All right. Well, moving on, let's talk about the people that, you know, give us money so that you can buy houses and we can talk online. Our wonderful, wonderful patrons. They are Pam Galley, Marquis, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Vay, Brendan Agnew, John Vinnels, Kit Kenny, Solomensky, and Seth Decker. Name list is getting longer. Going to have to start picking up that pace. We Now, if you'd like to get on that list and see if I really can reach Micro Machines Man level, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash Geeks with Shields. 25 cents an episode means you get access to all our episodes at least three days early. That's a hell of a deal. Anyway, so what are we talking about today, Ulrich? I know, but tell the wonderful listeners. <laughs> so... Those of you that have been following us since way back when or have gone through and binged our backlog may remember a little segment we did called Warrior Corner. We only ever did one because there were really... Well, only one ever... The second one was lost in the great data purging issue that took the Sons of Anarchy episode and a couple other things with it. Ah, okay. Point is that me and Ulrich, Ulrich and I... We've always been fans of history, or straight up um, something of a historian. Uh, he went to school for it. I am more, I mean, we're both, point is, we've always loved talking about his, history stuff, and particularly the ideas of warriors. I remember back in the time, back in the day when Deadliest Warrior was a thing, Ulrich and I loved that show just for the basic premise of it. Even though a lot of times we had problems with the show and execution, it made for great conversations. So Yeah, but anyways, we did one on the Spartans, because why not? And we got through it and kind of came away going, okay, that was a lot of work. And I personally didn't like it because I felt that I missed a lot of history. And I also didn't like it because it was essentially me talking at Axel for an hour. And that's not good content, in my opinion. Yeah, well, this was, this was also back in the days when Auric was a lot more 
let's go with structured about the podcast. Like he he had behind the curtain, he had much longer scripts to talk very specifically about what he was talking about. And then when we tried Warrior Corner again, because he went to school for history, he tried to be like almost like he put up a lecture. Which don't get me wrong, there's a time and place for that, but that wasn't what we intended with this kind of and what what our podcast ended up turning into is supposed to be like a friendly conversation between brothers and this wasn't that so and the amount of time to produce that one episode i mean producing episodes back then took a while then but that one was research and fact checking and just a lot of stuff that i don't want to do so we are bringing Warrior Corner back in a new streamlined version. And I thought about, hey, we're bringing Warrior Corner back. We should do a redux of the Spartan. And then I thought about it went, no, I'm not ready to tackle all the pop culture and other issues that are associated with Spartan warriors and ancient Greece. So we're no. going with an easy one. You know what we should do, by the way, before we get into it? Um, if we ever get, I don't know what our level of pull is right now. I wouldn't claim to to have any really, but... If we could get, like, people who, like, actually do, like, history kind of stuff to, like, come on and guess, we could make it, like, a Geeks of Grimdark thing, but instead we'd bring on a history guest to talk about the thing with. Interesting idea. Anyway, put that to the side. <laughs> oh, they're out there. I know you listen. I talk with you guys on Twitter. History people, let me know. We will get you on an episode. Don't know what it'll be about, but, yeah, no, guest lecture? Sure. Yeah, as for today, we're discussing the stereotypical but ubiquitous probably the most well-known ancient warrior in Western culture, a knight. Yep. Specifically, we're talking the medieval knight. And I say that for a couple reasons. Because, one, the term knight is super nebulous in its well, origins and what qualifies as a knight. Well, what's funny about that, I was... Um, when I got into For Honor uh, a couple years ago and I started doing like kind of research, I watched like historians really react to it. I found out anyway that from what I can tell, and I'm totally open to being corrected, most Western culture's idea of what a medieval knight is, is very specifically like a 14th to 15th century French knight. Like yep. it's it's a very specific type of armor that you see in movies and stuff that is like – really specific to that time and location but yeah we're we're talking a little more broadly in general we're, we're talking about like a 500 year period generally uh mid to western europe but you know because there's a lot of similarities here i just want to point out that you know most of pop culture is uh, is more specific even if uh at least a weird inaccuracy is like hey this show takes place in 12th century England. Why are they using a 14th century Frank weapon? You know, like, this kind of stuff happens. It's fine. <laughs> and that may sound like total gibberish to you, but hopefully by the end of the podcast, it'll make a bit more sense. So yeah, roughly, we're going to talk the medieval period as is defined between 1000 CE and 1500 CE, which ironically, historians even debate if that is the correct time period. I'm going with that one for two reasons. One, in my personal opinion, the medieval knight as we know it is kind of born at the Battle of Hastings in 1066, and 1500 is when you start getting into the Renaissance and the mercenary period, which replaces the knight. So, now that is all gibberish, but history people will understand what I'm talking about. Well, I would say, and again, you know more about history than me, but I would say that for me, one of the defining features of a, a knight that makes a knight is their their armor, their specific kind of plate mail. And I know that in 1000 C and 11th century, that still wasn't 
uh, was that even a thing? I know, like, oh no, like, kind of armor so, exists, but not not in the way I'm thinking. Because I know that, like, the Viking, the classic 11th century Viking, was using uh, like long chain mail, but not something yep. like plate mail. So, so the reason I cite the Battle of Hastings in 1066 as the birth of the knight because it's well, one, it's it essentially led to England you know, being the kingdom that it was at the time, but also because it saw the uh, the warfare up to that period was infantry-based, namely because horses were expensive and they weren't very big and they didn't really know how to use them. So when the Normans invaded, you know, England, they brought slightly bigger horses and they used horses to, you know, ride up and attack and harry away, but also once the enemy was drawn off, they rode them down. So this is when you start seeing that early idea of knights. Ironically, though, they were armed almost identically to the way everyone was fighting on foot, you know, chain mail, conical helmets. Well, by the way, um, quick, quick side note on that. I just looked it up and plate armor, as we understand it, really came into existence during the Hundred Years War in the 14th century, which was primarily a war between England and France, which ties into what I was saying before about most movies depiction of knights really being a 14th century French knight. But anyway. Yep. <laughs> and... The only real difference in the kind of set the medieval knight apart was, was the Norman knight was they had these nice big long kite shields that, you know, protected the whole, you know, side of the body. But they also started using big long spears to charge. Now, a lot of people go, well, people have been riding horses forever. Why didn't this take off? And it honestly was we didn't have stirrups in the West until the Mongols showed up. What's well, funny when you look oh, at sorry, history. Scratch that. Huns. No, Mong. Yeah, Huns. I always get those two no, mixed up. That's that's some tricky area you're in right there, Ulrich. Let's just get get you right out of that. Uh, it's, it's funny when you think about like what technology drove what sort of strategic innovations. I mean, you mentioned uh, the Mongols, whether intentionally or not intentionally. Now, the idea of being able to shoot a bow from horseback was what allowed them to, well, was one of the main reasons that allowed them to do what they did. And so, yeah, something as simple as, hey, I have these things I put around the horse so that I can be more stable, so I can hold this long, stabby thing a lot better, makes this more viable. So, yeah, so that's the big technological thing. But the other part that kind of came into play was Charlemagne and his Frankish Empire. No, we're talking about the French a lot here. We are going to French really do kind of birth the knights. I mean, the Romans it's, it's had their but, elements in the end of the empire, but it's weird to me that for the longest time growing up, the stereotype about French people was that they were like not warlike and they were cowardly. I think that comes from more like what happened in World War II or something like that. Anyway, point is stupid stereotype. But when you look at history, like. Most European war involved France. They were just... yep. France is out there fucking shit up. But yeah, so no, the Franks under Charlemagne kind of implemented the other big part of the knights is the feudal system in that Charlemagne sent out going, hey, I am your lord and commander. You need to come to war and you need to bring all of these things. And that was kind of tricky, but it put the idea of I can raise an army by calling people to war and they need to come with these things. And that's where we get the feudal system, which is the keystone of how the knight works. And a real quick breakdown of how the feudal system works, and this is a very bare bones system, is the king owns all the land. He gives some of his land to his lords in exchange for their them swearing fealty to him and agreeing to come fight for him when he wants. That lord then gives, you know, breaks up his land into barons and lesser people who then give their land, so on and so forth, until you got the guys at the bottom who get to live on the land in exchange for, well, not being killed. 
yeah, trickle-down system, pyramid scheme, whatever you want to call it. Point is, it was a way for a small group of people to exert a lot of control over a large group of people. And it was a structure, a structure to do that, so... Yep, and basically what this meant was these lords and barons could then spend the time learning to fight from horseback and have the money to buy all the stuff you needed to go to war. Because chainmail, I don't know if you guys know this, is time-consuming as hell to make. <laughs> yes, yes it is. It's taking little itty bitty rings and fusing them together by oh. hand. Well, also, in general, like, weapons were the kind of thing that, you know, if you look at most armies in history, the the successful weapons are ones that tended to be cheap and effective. One of the reasons why the spear was probably the greatest, like, pre-gunpowder kind of weapon is because you can make it really cheaply, and you didn't need any training to put it in someone's hand and be like, point it at the enemy army. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, yeah, knights are expensive. Like, having a retinue of knights, and that's the other thing, our kind of touch on there's a difference between a knight and a man at arms a knight is has you know the title of sir or lord they have property and they own a horse most importantly that's like the big thing is you own a horse and that's something that hasn't changed horses are still expensive today they were expensive then because horses eat a lot and they take a lot to take care of ironically yeah. Well, the only thing that's funny that when you look at, I might be skipping ahead a bit, but I remember growing up thinking it was weird that in video games, things like, you know, uh, Age of Empires or Here's My Magic, like character units that were called knights or things like that were usually riding horses. And to me, at, when I was young, I didn't, that didn't make any sense to me. I, Cavalier made sense, but that's a whole nother. So, but now you think about it and that's kind of one of the defining features. Yeah. The knights came in on horseback. You were... Your foot sloggers, the ones who usually had, you know, just a big pole arm to protect them or an axe that they brought from home because they couldn't even afford something else. Um, yeah, not not knights. <laughs> Too yeah. poor peasants. And also, a knight typically had three horses. He had his riding horse, he had his pack horse, and then he had his big-ass war horse, which I don't know if anyone listening has ever seen Clydesdales or those big work horses, but that's what they used to ride to battle. And if you've ever stood next to one of those things, you can imagine how terrifying that would be with coated in armor. You know, I've never seen a, you know, a medieval battle in person, obviously, because they stopped happening well before I was born. <laughs> but just based on movies and stuff, sometimes I'm amazed at the idea that horses could exist in that situation, but they wouldn't just run off immediately. I get, you know, you train a horse, break horse, whatever, but when there's just people everywhere, sound and blood and violence, it's just, it's just hard for me to imagine animals sticking around, so. Yeah, no, it's, again, it's an expensive horse then because you have to train it to, you know, be used to all of that noise, but you also, they trained him to bite and kick and stomp and just be mean. Hmm. But anyways, so that's one part of the night. The other part of the night is the sword, because unlike well, like chainmail, they take time to make, but they also take a high degree of skill to make well. Another reason why, and not not that I'm talking about Vikings in this one, but it's a, generally speaking, most Vikings didn't have swords because it was an expensive weapon, and most Vikings were just people who had axes. So similar thing going on here, where like, yeah, swords expensive to make, and it's not easy to use. Like an axe does all the work for you, all the weights on the end, you just bring it down. A sword, because most of the weight, you know, it's, it's supposed to be balanced. It, in fact, from what I've read, swords were most often backup weapons to your pole arm. Like you'd hopefully you didn't have. There were more status symbols than actual weapons, but if you want to use as an actual weapon, you had to be extremely trained to do so. 
Yeah, so we can talk about the fighting style of the knights and kind of how they evolved. But basically, they acted as giant armored wrecking balls in which the infantry would engage and push and shove. And then here come the knights around the flanks to come smashing into the poor peasants who have never left their farm in their lives. And you got a big guy in armor on a horse with a big long spear. Lances kind of evolved, but basically big long spear and the weight of the horse and the man all focused in on that tiny little spear does terrible damage. And then, you know, the spear gets stuck in somebody and then the sword comes out and you just start striking at everything. And it's a horrible affair meant to just shock and awe. I mean, you could argue that even though the technology changed, the one of the primary characteristics of the knight was the knight was the essentially the tank before there were tanks. It was the heaviest yep. armored person. They were supposed to be slow, but very difficult to hurt and just smash their way through things. So, Well, you do have the problem, like you talked about, is when you get horses kind of stuck in that big mass... You do run the risk of them being panicked. You do run the risk of the guy getting pulled off his horse. But that's, again, the strength of the horses is you can back out of the combat and charge back in again and stomp everybody. I mean, just imagine getting... It's The uh, best way I can describe medieval combat is imagine if... And this is a terrible example. I know why I'm saying it. But it's a car going into a crowd. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty accurate, all things considered. <laughs> I'm just saying current events make that a bad, but you get the damage that it's able to do. Yeah, big-ass horse. I understand. I've watched someone get kicked by a horse, and I've never seen someone get run over by a horse, but I can imagine, especially at Clydesdale. Yeah, so we're getting these big horses, and you know, medieval Europe is basically constant warfare because so many of these families, like the ruling families, are related in some weird way, which leads to territory disputes of, well, who gets to own what? So they're constantly fighting each other, meaning warfare is constant. Weapons and armor are constantly changing. And one of the first things that changes the knights is they're like, okay, we need to protect the weak points. The weak points are my head and my joints. So basically we have Warhammer 1K. <laughs> yep. You're starting, to, you're starting to bolt, you know, uh, plate metal, plate armor around the elbows, around the knees, and you're getting these big, heavy helmets, which you kind of envision, you know, the big basket helms and stuff I, like that. I, I'm in, someone invested in the HEMA community, which is historical European martial arts. Uh, really fun stuff. But I know that from watching a bunch of videos, I, I found that most of them say, if you can only take one piece of, like, gear into battle, you take a helmet or a shield, primarily a helmet to protect your head, but... Yeah, harmless and shields. The point is that, like, defense, super paramount. <laughs> and here's the cool thing about shields. the As the medieval period goes on and people get more and more armor on them, shields get smaller and smaller. Well, well especially once plate, again, once plate mail comes up in the 14th century, you are essentially covering your entire body in a shield. There's not really yep. benefit from having a shield on your arm and that's also at that point when larger weapons can become more well normal because you now you have both hands free although still from what i can tell generally speaking you're better off with one free hand so you can wrestle people because a lot of historical european martial arts involves grabbing someone to put them in a situation where you can then stab them properly so. yeah so that's the thing so we're moving out of the early middle ages we're now moving into the middle uh the high middle ages they're getting a bit more plate armor. They're starting to do, you know, chest plates and skirts. And they're starting to get a little bit more. You got a little metallurgy's getting a bit better. Swords are getting better. Swords are getting bigger. And shields are kind of shrinking down. And then we end up in the Crusades, which we're not going to touch on the Crusades. There's plenty of history podcasts about the Crusades. But the Crusades, 
Uh, for the record, Extra Credits has a great series yes. on Crusades. So. Crusades are where we get a lot of the Holy Orders, the Knights Templar specifically, which have this weird place in pop culture history that I don't fully understand outside of the fact that they are one of the most powerful and famous knightly orders. Well, the funny thing is that the, the Crusades were largely failures when you look at them from yeah, yeah. like on paper standpoint. Yeah, like a couple of them really quote-unquote succeeded, but considering how many occurred and a lot of times they were a really weird affair where just someone was like, some random person was like, hey, time, let's go try to take back the land and, and then usually get mostly peasants involved in it. So it's like this idea of the Crusader or the Templar, yes, is definitely a thing, but is not really the most most prominent aspect of those stories. So, <laughs> But the Crusades are important in this part because it kind of goes the other part of the medieval knight, medieval society was the power of the Catholic Church. Because that's the other part. Knights are supposed to be holy warriors. They're supposed to, you know... Do what the church says. And part of the reason the Crusades were started was because all these Christian kingdoms were fighting each other and killing each other. And they were well, like, no, I, no, 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 go fight these guys. Well, hold on, Auric. I mean, you're, you're kind of right, but by your own... So, uh, like what you were saying earlier, knights were not primarily a religious order. It's just that they... Because they were primarily a order of their, their lords and their king. It's just that there was a high, high amount of... Mm, Overlaps with the right word, but a high amount of interdependency between the church and the crown. So, yeah. well, there was, there was more power play of who was the real power. I mean, yeah, that's why we was, there was a constant shoving match between the two. No, I'm the king. Well, I'm the voice of God. Well, I'm God on earth because I said so. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole bit there that we could go into. But my point being that, like, you know, even I don't know much about the history of Templars specifically. Um, I know there's also some conspiracy stuff going there. Not, not we don't care about that. But the point is that the distinction between a knight who happened to be doing something for the church, probably because his lord was for the church, versus a knight that was like a essentially a paladin, is you know is a fine detail and important distinction. Yeah. So, so. let's talk about the knightly orders real quick in the briefest of terms. Basically. What happened was the first crusade was a success. They managed to capture, you know, Jerusalem and people wanted to travel back and forth to these holy cities. So they would end up hiring, you know, mercenary bands or knights or somebody protect them on the road because it's a long ways from Paris to Jerusalem and very dangerous. So over time, these groups of knights, you know, began to organize and form orders. And eventually the Knights Templar had a really impressive banking system. And ultimately, that was their undoing. Was the King of France and the Catholic and the Pope did not like this order of you know knights having all this power and money, so they concocted a conspiracy and had them all killed. Yeah, that's another thing too. When you read the story of the Crusades, you see a lot of uh, propaganda and the power of propaganda, which is it's weird to be like. This was like over a thousand years ago. Well, not quite, but you know, see, it's a long time ago. And yeah, the same kind of forces that we we um, we see at play today, you can see them really effectively at play in these stories, which is crazy. So, yeah, so that really kind of you know accelerates the pace of warfare. We get bigger horses, we get better weapons, we get better armor, and this all kind of tips off in what Axe mentioned of the Hundred Years' War, which that's a very complex series of stuff. And I know we're not going to last it more than a hundred years, by the way. Oh yeah, but <laughs> it went basically... from 
went from 1337 to 1453. Yeah, and it all really, again, started over territory and, ironically, wine. See, I didn't didn't know that. I actually know very little about the Hundred Years' War, other than it was a crazy war between England and France that lasted forever, comparatively. So Yeah, no, it all came, well, it's, again, and here's the fun thing. So, William the Conqueror, going back to the Normans, first king of England, was from France, meaning that the English throne and France, French throne were tied throughout history. And again, as these two kingdoms grew big and powerful, land disputes came into play. Of course. <laughs> so you have this big, long, spanning period of war back and forth in these two big kingdoms, and France was able to field a good amount of knights, part of being, you know... Uh, the geography, but also money. They could afford to, you know, raise massive amounts of knights. So they were good. So you have these two big superpowers going at it. And while it does lead to the point we're getting where we have the, you know, the knight in shining armor, you know, covered head to toe in plate armor, this also brings about the inevitable downfall of the knight happens in this period. Well, the uh, 14th century... Sorry, I was just trying to think about when gunpowder started really coming into uh, gunpowder. What the six? It's a bit further on. I think it's what that's fifteenth, sixteenth century. So oh no, it's way before that. Well, no, I know gunpowder. Okay, correction. I know gunpowder as a weapon has been used in like China since way even before any of this. But like as a common weapon, uh, you know, things like the original, you know, kind of firearms. That's more what I was talking about. So that's. 14th century but even then gunpowder and cannons is appearing in the 13th century like they used it during the beginnings of the hundred years war but it was still so much in its infancy that it was near useless in a lot of ways it was all not useless in the fact that they just didn't know how to produce it properly or cast the cannons for it properly so they because i know a lot of times and i always heard and i'm sure that like again i'm open to being corrected but i always heard that one of the big deaths of the knight that the covered in plate mail was the predominance of firearms that firearms essentially rendered uh that level of armor pointless <laughs> eventually that's an oversimplification but we'll circle back to that because i kind of want to talk about the arms and the armor this period so around this time in this big war we've talked about there's two real centers that are making nice plate armor that is in germany and in Italy, specifically Milan and I think Habsburg. I'm saying Germany has had great engineers that long. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So no, they're cranking out the plate armor, and this is when you get plate armor evolves into what's called Gothic plate armor, which is it's got ridges that help catch and deflect, and shields aren't even a thing anymore. Now we're wielding the big two-handed broadswords that you see a lot of the time. Uh, and maces. I was about to say, the, the flanged mace basically was like, how do we deal with people covered in head-to-toe in armor? Because swords ain't cutting it. So they just make a yep. big-ass flanged mace. <laughs> Ironically, the two prime examples also come from Germany and Italy. Hmm, also, enough. interestingly enough, the mace was a preferred weapon of the clergy because it was a sin to spill blood. But if you break bones, God looks the other way. <laughs> uh, okay. And we also get, you know, war hammers, which I know the popular idea is big hammers the size of, you know, your chest. But actually, it's about the size of your fist because it's amazing what happens when you focus force. 
Well, again, also uh, the the HEMA community has has at least taught me that speed is paramount. At the end of the day, is when yep. it came to fighting someone else, how fast you could strike and get out of the way was way more important than anything else. So a big ass, you know, maul usually not that useful. You're better off with uh, war hammers were not much bigger than what you might call today a regular hammer. They were shaped differently, meant specifically to go through like armor, but yeah, they were not very large. And the other problem is, is it's wasted force. You don't need that big 15, 20 pound hammer. You only really need a five pound hammer because I hit you in the head with both. They do the same. They're going to do different amounts of damage, but the end result's the same. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember reading somewhere that the largest sword ever actually fielded in a real battle was from Scotland. It was seven feet long, but it was only 14 pounds. And, like, that's a huge weapon. So, like, stuff you see in, you know, a lot of modern depictions. uh, Let's use an example everyone knows. Skyrim. Almost all the weapons in Skyrim are way oversized. The human community calls swords paddles for a reason. Yeah. No, yeah. you did get big two-handed swords. The Germans had these really cool Zweihanders, which had a handle on top of a handle, so you could really move your hand up and down to control these swings. But this is, again, late period because now it's about going for the weak parts in the armor, trying to get the armpits, trying to get the shoulders, trying to get the necks, the parts that you can't really reinforce because you have to be able to move. Yeah. and But you also kind of start seeing swords getting a bit thinner and more well, more pointed, because again, it's about getting in and underneath those pits Sorry, where the yeah, plates. Rapiers. Mm-hmm. We're not quite to rapiers yet. Rapiers are a few years down. These are the proto rapiers, I guess. Okay. But they're basically the same premise is the same. You want to get in and underneath the flaps. All right. So medieval knights are still out there uh, filling their role. But there's a couple, I mean, they're starting to see the decline. And there's two real big battles that people, a lot of historians will point to. Uh, the first being the Battle of Bannockburn, which was when Edward II went to war with Robert the Bruce and was soundly defeated by an army of mostly peasants. Mm. Because what they did was they picked, the, the battlefield was such that the only way to approach the Scottish army was from the front because there were marshes around to the sides. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so Robert had spent this time training up his Scottish militia to use pikes and operate in a skiltron, which is basically big wall of spears. All right. And the easiest way to beat a guy on a horse is to force him to charge into a wall of pointed sticks. <laughs> Remember what I was saying earlier about how spears are easy to use because they don't require that much training? <laughs> yeah. These are, well, these are more pikes in that they're big and long but one of the things they did was they would occasionally open a line to let a couple of you know the english knights in and then they would pull them off their horses and mount them up themselves so that they could ride and one of the fun anecdotes of this battle is reportedly robert the bruce kind of got tired of this back and forth you know slow baiting of them he wanted a big uh dramatic moment so he called out you know a challenge to the english army to you know come out and fight him And this knight, you know, rode out full head to toe, plate armor, big long lance, ready to put down this petty Scottish king. And Robert's out there, not as well equipped, and he's got a little war axe. And reportedly, they charged at each other, and at the last minute, Robert ducked out of the way and hit him in the back of the head with his axe, apparently broke the handle off, killed the guy dead, and rode back to his line. And this is such an often quoted story because 
we're see this this works because this guy had the big long sword and all the armor, and all Robert needed was a little tiny, you know, medieval war axe. So that's one big battle there. The other battle, all this is a French defeat, is Agincourt, which similar tactic, but the longbow was at play. Mm. And the longbow was an English secret weapon, and it was incredibly powerful, incredibly long range. But people, that's one thing too. I was recently looking at, I was watching some uh, historian break down like weapon uses in video games. And I think that people don't understand necessarily the longbow. I think people understand a short bow very well. It's the kind of thing you see used all the time. But a longbow that could be taller than the wielder and could have like hundreds of pounds of force behind it and required your entire body to pull. Is it like a, its own creature, you know? Yeah, no, the English longbow, or actually more appropriately, the Welsh longbow, had a roughly 175, 200 pound draw. And so, yeah, the English, again, were outnumbered, but they fought on this hilltop. And I ain't going to go into the whole battle of Ashenkor. You can look that up something. But basically, this was two examples of common people with simple weapons defeated expensive armies and the knights kind of start people start going okay i have to train this guy since he's eight i have to fund all this and he's getting killed by a peasant with a pointy stick yeah <laughs> tech man yeah and there was no real way to work around this they couldn't build better armor that could defeat these things i mean pole arms start coming up that's where you get all the cool pole axes and halberds and those various ones and then gunpowder rolls around and you can do even less about gunpowder and the knight just kind of stops being feasible. He's expensive. He dies easily. Hmm. But you know what? The royalty still love them, so they still collect the armor. They still dress up. They still do tournaments. And they discover they can conscript people in the hundreds to go out and die for them while they sit in their castles in their shiny armor going, repose, ha-ha, on guard. And we get into the whole mercenary period of the 1500s on. Hmm. Okay. So that is the History of the Night, very briefly summarized. There's lots of great resources out there if you want to learn more, but we're trying to change it up. So moving on to what qualifies a knight. These are the key things that, you know, I think are fair to say. These are a knight. First one is they fight mounted. I mean, that's the, that's the, the most baseline. Do you fight on a horse? I'll take it. Uh, second one is wears armor because... Anyone can fight. You can, you can, Calvary's existed for a while, but being able to afford decent armor, that's a big thing. Um, has a quote unquote moral code. We didn't really talk about the idea of chivalry, which was kind of put in place and pushed again by the Catholic Church of, hey, these are how you should be, be a good person. And well, and of course, most knights were like, we consider them more guidelines than actual rules. People are people. You got some real good ones, you got some real pieces of shit. That's just how it goes but the most important thing is they are just a link in a much bigger chain of command well generally speaking you, when you look at these kind of structures right that's supposedly the difference between a sanctioned warrior and a not sanctioned warrior so you look at a a knight is someone who basically has a a license to be a warrior as it were and yep. but they because of that they have someone who they, is their their lord or their sir i mean i like i like actually in the Japanese history, you have a distinction because you can call samurai versus ronin. There's a very specific term. I don't know if we really have a a term. You got a man at arms. This is what a man at arms is. 
Well, that's the man arms that that catch all term of they they're they they don't really they have a lord they might or might not have a lord they have some skills but they probably don't own land if they do they don't own a lot of land and they they make up the bulk of the army they're your they're your semi skilled fighters okay okay but they don't own a horse and most of their armor is stolen off the dead bodies of somebody else. <laughs> talk about that there's a lot of looting like after the battle lots of looting because you can sell that you might find somebody you could ransom back you might find a sword well, I mean, that's also tons of resources that you don't just... You, they lived in a much more resource-scarce world than we live in now. You don't just leave perfectly good weapons and armor that someone, some smith somewhere made, uh, you know, just lying in the muck. <laughs> well, roads did not exist as we think of them now. So transporting stuff A to B was a nightmare. Well, what's funny about that is that because roads historically have been one of the greatest weapons of war ever, which is not just a weird sentence, but there are some historians that say that was one of the main, if not the main reason the Roman Empire was as powerful as it was because they had roads. And when you have yes. roads, you can transport your troops very well. <laughs> and the decline of the empire and the breakdown of the roads, it goes hand. It, no, there's a strong argument to be made that was definitely a factor. So. With that in mind, let's move on to the latter half of this and talk about the pop culture idea and kind of some of the examples of knights in pop culture. And I think the most defined one is the shining armor, that full beautiful plate, that moral justice or that King Arthur figure. Yeah, I mean, you can think of literally any hundreds of movies that have depicted it. My my personal favorite is probably A Knight's Tale. I have not seen it in a long time. And oh, I'm not God, that a- movie. It's a fun movie. That's all I know about it. But uh, I would I wouldn't be surprised if someone was like, it's extremely historical and accurate. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised. They but, pl- oh, um, don't get me started on that movie. I think this is exactly what we're here for, for you to get started on a movie like this. Go for it. I'm not going to be offended. <laughs> uh, there is so much wrong. Like I love the base idea because they were obsessed with tournaments because that was a way – you could make money as a knight without necessarily risking your life, and it was entertainment, and it was a great way to show off your wealth, but it's got this pop culture glaze all over the movie that just saps it of any historical... Like, I could watch a really good HBO drama about a joust, just, like, set over some time, because there's so much money being changed, there's all these people competing. Oh... No, and I got anything about that. But they got Queen. They think we will rock you. Come on now. See, I, I love that. But to me, it's see. I was actually talking this today. I was watching someone. Uh, I was at someone's house, and they were watching Vikings. And I was making a point that I can't watch that show because I either want something to be so far from historically accurate that it's just farcical and fun and goofy, which is what a Knight's Tale is, or I want it to be basically so accurate that it's just a documentary. And that show, Vikings is trying to lean closer to the right without committing all the way, which just makes all the things that aren't historically historically accurate glaring and distracting. Whereas because because something like A Knight's Tale isn't trying at all for something like historical accuracy, it's just trying to evoke an image and an aesthetic, it doesn't bother me when things aren't... uh, aren't accurate because it's not trying to be it's no if they wanted to do that set it in space because that'd be cool jet bikes and aliens and well no like i said it's about an aesthetic it's about creating the aesthetic of medieval times literally like 
the the restaurant medieval times. So there is something to be said about wanting to. I mean, that's part of the appeal of something like D and D is I want to feel like this kind of time and place, but you know, fantasy it up kind of thing. So I okay, think that could work too. I just need that. I need that divide. It needs to go over in a little pocket world where I don't. It's like okay. They're, they're singing Queen, but it's okay because in this universe they have some version of that. Yeah, so I'm just saying that – I'm not saying you have to see it that way, but that's how I see that movie as is so far to the fantasy. It's just it, – it only is related to quote-unquote real-world knights in that it's sharing an aesthetic with them. As close to real-world knight is as a D&D paladin is. So. No, they get they get the jousting right, and everyone's obsession with jousting. That part's cool. I mean, they kind of live out. Jousting was a big thing, but they also had the melees, which was a bunch of you know knights on foot in a big battle royale, beating the living hell out of each other. Although I feel like at this point, even with how the last few years really soured culture on it, I think most people living today in our world, at least in Western culture, when they think of a knight, they're gonna think of. Uh, either Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones first for different reasons. Yeah, so Game of Thrones gets a lot of it right. I mean, it's very much based in that medieval setting. Not enough horses, though, and I get you that because say, horses are expensive. Yeah, because would you say I always felt like um, I always felt like Game of Thrones was relatively similar to say late 14th century uh, Europe. Would you say that's accurate? Not you're not seeing enough plate armor. You're seeing very early plate armor. Yeah, so this okay. is more 13th century. I'd say 12th, 13th. I mean, the castles are all way later in the period, but the plate armor is still there's still a lot of plate. There's still a lot of chainmail. I think back to like all the Lannisters and their crazy like full plate armor, and you know the Hound of the Mountain have full plate armor, and Bran of Tarth is full plate armor. I feel like there's a lot of full plate armor. It's just we spend a lot of time with peasants. So, well, it's that's the cool thing. It's plate armor, but that's still very early plate armor. It's still lots of broad, rounded edges. You don't got the flares and the little bits. Because that's one of the other things they start reinforcing because they they kind of ran into you have this big, broad bit. That's a big chunk that can just get dented into you. So you got to reinforce it somehow. Okay, but it is a nice touch. So, so you'd say you look. At, hmm? So you say what early fourteenth century then? I'd go mid-13th. Mid? Okay. Yeah. And it is cool that you can note in Game of Thrones that the people that have the money, i.e. the Lannisters, they're the ones whose armies are equipped in that nice early proto-plate mail. And the poor people, you know, the Starks, not as much. They're more. They're rocking more chain mail. Well, the Starks are a stone's throw away from, like, 12th century Vikings, really. So... <laughs> yeah. So now you do run the gambit. And then, you, well, the Knights of the Veil, they really, those were, and you saw them being used like actual medieval knights just sweeping people aside. Yeah, cavalry. Actually u- utilizing cavalry. I also yeah. think I thought, so, like, without getting into specifics, that, that was one thing I thought the Battle of the Bastards was really cool about. Like, literally a big sweep of cavalry comes in to break the the encirclement. So, but anyway. Yep. That's how they'd be used. So for all of the scuttlebutt around Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones is probably the closest representation to the historical night. I mean, let's, well, let's least, look at, at this least, here. At least in a very pop culture, I am positive, because I've heard some of the human community mention these before, that you can find like pretty good movies that are a lot more historically accurate, I'm sure. But it's like a, hey, what's something everyone knows that's also not terribly inaccurate? When it comes when it comes to like how they're portrayed anyway, because like 
at least from a fighting standpoint, most of the fights in Game of Thrones are poor. But that's <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but I mean, it checks all our checkbox: fights mounted, wears armor, has a moral code, is beholden to someone else. I mean, that it's based on a medieval world, so. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, other good... It's funny, because, like, all those movies, they kind of blend together for me, and I can't think of any particularly good, like, medieval night kind of movies that stick out in my head. I'm sure there are... There's, there's not. I'm telling you, as a history guy, there, there's not. Well, to be fair, you have a... To be fair, you have a particular axe to grind about what you call historical movies. So I'm thinking more yeah, about... Yeah, they're bad. Yeah, so I'm thinking about more things that are... Again, trying to bring up the aesthetic, but also happen to be a lot closer to accurate. I don't know what that would be. Braveheart, so. I'll give some point. The English knights are, are got some good representation in there. Uh, Outlaw King actually is a really great example. We talked about that. That has pretty accurate to the period. Kingdom in Heaven gets some points. I don't know. Historical movies, uh, so... I don't know. I kind of want to go out there. I mean, we got to talk about, we're breaking some podcast rules here, but Jedi Knights are literally modeled or idealized after that. All right, well, hold on, hold on. So we're going into fanciful, uh, essentially people taking the idea of a knight and trying to expand into something else. Because we look at your qualities of a knight and the Jedi literally only have one of four. (laughs) So I'd argue, well, hold on now. They wore armor in the Clone Wars. Mm, most of them did not, but it depends depending on which version you're watching. If you're watching either the animated series, they wore a degree of armor sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, much much less than compared to their you know troops, which is yeah. kind of different from how a knight. Well, that's own, yeah, no, we the clones. Do we want the clones in here? Let's see. They wore armor. They were beholden to someone. They some fought mounted. They, they had don't a moral code. Moral code. They, 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 that's the thing is that troopers, clone troopers and stormtroopers, and they, you know, don't have a specific moral code. They're just troops. So. That's true. So, yeah, no, the clones actually check more marks for being qualities of a knight than the Jedi. Literally, the Jedi knight are only called that because – so, first of all, knight is a rank in, uh, in Jedi culture, right? Because you – a Jedi Knight is below, like, a master, but above a apprentice, essentially, or base Jedi. Yeah, but it's also a catch-all term for, you know, all those guys over there are Jedi Knights. I guess. I'm, I'm getting, like, kind of expanded universe-specific there based on games, and I probably shouldn't do that. So, but uh, if we look at or why can they get that term? We look back at, like, just A New Hope, and Obi-Wan mentions, you know, I was a Jedi Knight the same as your father. What does that mean in that context? And it probably really comes down primarily to the idea that they have a moral code, a very specific moral code. Because not beholden to anyone. They're technically beholden to, like, the galaxy. <laughs> I don't so, know where they fell in. Like, I thought they, they – well, this is kind of a funny thing. You had that shoving match between do the Jedi have ultimate authority or did the Senate have ultimate authority? Who was in charge of who? And there was a shoving match going on there. Because the the Jedi have have more in common with a monastic order. They're not Mm -hmm. a governing body themselves. They're not attached to the specific governing body. They're more like, Hey, that's a powerful group that we want to have good, good relations with that will help us when they feel it is appropriate. So, yeah, I know. I think the reason they did Jedi, and it's kind of the lasting impact of the Jedi or the Knights, they did Knights, was the idea that well, they protected the weak and they, you know, were good guys that 
did all these nice things. And it's, it's a nice, fanciful idea about our own history. Well, it's funny about that as we look at the fanciful. We, we talked before about how people are people at the end of the day. Is, and there were tons of knights who were – that's one thing the Game of Thrones I think really gets across is the Hound's particular disdain for the ideals of a knight and how most of it's bullshit compared to Bran of Tarth who actually is totally a knight and the ideal version of a knight. So like they exist but they're not that common necessarily. So there's this like propaganda then that – I, you could argue probably is partly to try to get people to want to be a knight. Although I feel like being able to own land and not get raided was probably already good motivation. But this idea of like bolstering up your own sect of people in a way that, you know, making everyone think that there's this idealized, as you say, protector kind of mythos around them. I'm just, I'm curious if someone who, I don't know, studies history of marketing almost, like how that image really comes into what we call popular culture so well it's because the nobles held on to this lofty idea of the night long after the night existed and the fact that in it's 2021 and we are still making king arthur products you want to talk about the lasting legacy of the night and why we think of the night is it's because king arthur would that would that mean that lancelot is the prototypical uh knight figure Yes, but Lancelot comes later. Like he's a late addition in the mytho- yeah, in the Arthur mythology. Okay, I guess I would admit that, like, so Arthur, right, is is a king first and foremost, who happens to also be a knight. I suppose. I mean, in the Fate series, they refer to to him as the King of Knights. But that's why I was thinking, like, okay, in the King Arthur mythos, who was the most prominent pure knight? And that's got to be Lancelot. So, oh no, it's Galahad. It's uh Galahad? Really? It's, it's like his name's like Sir Galahad the Chaste. Wasn't Galahad well see the only reason I know Galahad's name really well is because of like Kingsman. I feel like Lancelot is a lot more known in uh Dude, common... Lancelot stole his lord's wife. I'm not saying that the myth doesn't like lend itself to to this particular I'm just saying that everyone knows the name Lancelot, whereas I'm yeah. betting quite a few people who don't even who don't even know galahad i can't name you know, parcival no parcival is the knight who actually went after the holy grail you think he would be the most well-known but <laughs> yeah no i just don't i mean i feel like galahad's got good odds because uh monty python's the holy grail because he goes to castle anthrax all right i guess <laughs> but yeah you know you anyway, want to know why the knight has lasted it is 100 percent king arthur Mm, okay, I think there's an argument to be made there, and I'd be willing to get on board with it. But I want to continue with this idea of following fanciful, ridiculous, totally not a knight, but gets the knight t- term anyway. So, you had another one? Yeah, I, I feel like it's us. We got to talk about it. We got to talk about 40K. And they have two brands of quote unquote knights one being the Adeptus Astartes, aka the Space Marines, and the other one being literally called Imperial Knights. Okay, so if we look at. If we look at how 40k armies are built, and we look at an imperial army, guardsmen are basically our equivalent of peasants. We give them a cheap weapon, in their case the last gun, equivalent to, say, a spear or a basic polearm, and they fill up a prime the, the vast majority of your boots on the ground. And then you've got a much smaller number of uh, heavily trained, you've put tons of resources into them from a young age they're covered in the best technology you can give them in this case power armor as opposed to plate armor uh they would say that plenty of them are mounted because a lot of space marines have like motorbikes 
or uh, in the Space Wolves case, they literally ride giant wolves. And they're definitely beholden to someone else, kind of. I mean, they're all beholden to the Emperor. Most Space Marines are just beholden to, like, their chapter lead. But that's kind of like saying a Knight Order beholden to their Order Master. So it's a little it's a little different. That's, that's iffy ground. Do Space Marines have a moral code? You could argue that the Codex Astartes is basically their is equivalent. Their code to- is chivalry. I mean, it dictates how they should wage combat and what they should act like. I feel like Adeptus Astartes can be considered knights if you squint. Like, you have to squint a bit, but I can... I would argue they are the closest we have on the pop culture scale in the fantasy-verse. Well... Well, Sci-fi-verse, I think. Yeah, because I'm like, I know I can hear hear Sotek at the back of my head. What about fantasy knights? I mean, again, I mentioned the paladin in in any fantasy RPG or D&D. A paladin is literally like the idea of of a knight, even though a knight is usually a separate thing from a paladin. I once got into a like a four or five hour argument about what makes a paladin a paladin in a game. I don't want to rehash that. But point is, no, and we're not going to touch fantasy because fantasy, it's too easy. They literally lift the medieval setting and add magic. Yeah, but I would say as far as sci-fi settings are concerned, I can't imagine a closer analog than the Astartes. So, yeah, I mean they have a feudal system in place. Like a lot of them are lords of their worlds, which they were granted by the Imperium. I mean, I can think of a few crummy examples, like whatever Channing Tatum was supposed to be in uh, that that one Rising movie, um, Jupiter one Ascending. Rising. Yeah. Oh. God, that movie. Like, he was supposed to be something like a sci-fi knight, but that, you know... I don't remember enough about that movie, except it goes on forever and has, like, <laughs> three endings. The movie ends three times and then starts again. Yeah, and, not my my uh, point was that I'm sure that there are other sci-fi properties that have analogs to them, but I can't imagine, like, ones that are as ubiquitous as the Astartes, so... Yeah, well, again, kind of because 40K is a magpie of sci-fi, they really did live that. And yeah, no, they check all the boxes. And then lastly, I think we got to talk about... They kind of check all the boxes. I won't, but, but yes, now an Imperial Knight, on the other hand, that's a little tougher because, I mean, huh? is, them, is them being in the suit being mounted? Does that count? Well, they refer to them as their mounts. Okay, like so they call them their mounts. That means their mount they have armor. heraldry like knights. Yeah, so the, the the fact that their mount is their armor it combines two checkboxes into one is a little weird. Uh, they generally are beholden to their like their city uh, or their, their forge world or their house, which yeah, is exactly. beholden to the Imperium. I've never heard about knights having a specific moral code, but I I've never looked too deep into knights. They're kind of supposed they they lift very heavily code of chivalry defend humanity yada 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 blah 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 but it's nebulous it's not like they don't have a clear this is the code of the imperial knight yeah so again i'm gonna go with my my squinting theory here so all right i I would say space marines fit it better than they do but yeah no space marines for being called imperial knight space marines really have that more in lock and it could be because knights are relatively new faction army what have you in 40k I guess I'm. I'm, just, I'm imagining in my head uh, white scars just on their motorbikes, primarily. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, that fits. Or Dark Angels, which are very heavily designed, cued from monastic. I should have mentioned Dark Angels. Yeah, well, Dark Angels specifically, are their aesthetic is even drawn very, very specifically from like Arthurian legend kind of stuff. Hence why they have more tabards and hoods and things. So Yeah. All right. So now let's shift into comics and the various interpretations of knights in comics. Okay. Uh, I mean, I don't really know much i know moon knight that you're a real fan of but i don't know much about moon knight other than what little you've told me oh let's see moon knight he wears armor he has a moral code he's beholden to the moon god but he doesn't have a he follows a moon god i didn't know that yeah uh why am i blanking on the moon god's name but yeah that's literally how he got his powers was he was chosen by an Egyptian moon god, who I can't believe I'm blanking on his name, to be the defender of those who travel at night. Hmm. All right. Okay. But he doesn't. I mean, there's the moon copter, but that's not really fighting mounted. That's just what he deploys out of. <laughs> I mean, there's the Black Knight, who is literally the descendant of King Arthur in Marvel, who has a sword and wears armor. You know, you mentioned Monty Python earlier, and I feel like we didn't give enough like, <laughs> conversation to, like, how how well does Monty Python, the big jokey thing, actually depict the, the knights. So uh, I, don't, we take, I don't have an answer for it, but... I don't know. And then I feel we got to talk about the other famous knight before we can move off comics, and that's Batman. The Dark Knight? Uh, yeah. Okay, well, let's see. Dark Knight definitely wears armor has a, and has a moral code, but he ain't beholden to anyone. That's no, he's beholden to Batman. <laughs> yeah. You could argue fights while mounted because he does plenty of fighting like in jets and in the Batmobile and stuff like that, but he is his own entity. So I, uh, Fights mount. Uh, I, how many times? I mean, I haven't read enough Batman comics to know if he ever fought somebody on the Bat Cycle. That seems like a really cool visual that they would do at some point. No, what I mean is that his his bat vehicles all have, like, weapons and stuff, so if he's utilizing those while in them, he is fighting mounted, and he does that all the time in the the bat plane and the batmobile, so that counts. The only only one he doesn't get is he's not beholden to anyone. He's literally not beholden to anyone. Yeah. All right, so now let's wrap this by discussing Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Accurate historical interpretation of knight. Um, I know one thing that they do well is that you don't see uh, the Black Knight's style of helmet. You don't see that in pop culture that often. And nope, the great I, helm? Yeah, a great helm. You don't see that actually that often. Yeah, no, that's a really cool one. And that one, that came up from the Crusades because you're finally able to cover your entire head except for your narrow little eye slots. Which are very unlikely for anything to hurt you through that. Although, although again, this follows the idea of the more protected your head the more limited your vision yeah that's the trade-off um they do a great joke at the expense of feudalism yes yes of course they do <laughs> uh they fought they had they had their horses kind of <laughs> <laughs> they wore armor does pretend mounted count as mounted <laughs> so. yes i mean loyal steed patsy okay all right i guess that that counts moral code, and they were sent on the quest by God. Beholden to God. (laughs) I think Monty Python might actually check the most boxes of our pop culture night. Well, if you squint really hard at at fights mounted. 
anyway. <laughs> we let Batman have his, you know, I shot a bad guy while driving my Batmobile. I feel like that's easier to justify than I have someone <laughs> pretending to be a horse behind me. So, hey, that's because budget didn't exist. Oh, all right. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm actually curious if you're listening. If you're still listening to us, what is your favorite and least favorite depiction of a night in pop culture? And what are your problems or favorite things? Uh, you know, just just what what do you think? I'm curious. Okay. What, what... Well, we we got to answer that ourselves. And my least favorite. Is a knight's tale. My least favorite depiction of a knight. Uh, I don't have enough, like, I mean, it might be Monty Python, but that's only because to me, no, no, Monty Python fits in with a knight's tale for me pretty well, being so farcical that it's not really meant to be anything other than other than that. I I say that, hmm, I don't know. I'm, oh, it's probably a game of some sort. If I think of, like, a game, like, maybe even yeah. stuff, like, I love Skyrim as a game a lot, but those games entirely, things like that, have such bad, so poor depictions of how historical European martial arts functions that they probably are what bother me most. And my favorite is probably Dark Souls, because... Oh, I can't believe we went an entire episode about knights and didn't talk about Dark Souls. Yeah, Dark Souls is probably my favorite because like the armor is extremely, like... Fit. There is plenty of ridiculous fanciful armor, but the basic knight armor and like the elite knight armor, and there's a lot of armor sets that are just straight up, really no fucking like caveats, good sets of armor that aren't also aren't gendered, but just always a good thing. Uh, and the fact that like how the protection works, and I love the fact that. Dark Souls has the system of oh, the more armored you are, the slower you can do certain things because you're trading off mobility for defense. And yeah, so I'd say that as a, a base, I'm sure I could think of a particular game that I'd like less than Skyrim. It's just an easy whipping boy for, for this kind of conversation. And don't get me wrong, I love Skyrim. But for my answer, I'm going to go with Skyrim, least favorite, Dark Souls favorite. Yeah, no, I'm sure video games, definitely there's some bad depictions out there. Probably any number of real over the top fantasy armor, but the one since this is on my mind, it's a Knight's Tale. And then Game of Thrones, I really like their depictions of knights there. It's probably cheating, but there's enough magic in there, I feel like it qualifies as fantasy. Well, I know that one of the fights that is actually considered really good is the fight with um Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I watched uh. Was it Scalagrad? I don't remember which HEMA person I watched break that fight down. But they talked about how, hey, watch how – here's how you actually would dual wield. You do this kind of thing to keep you from getting surrounded. Here's how you actually fight where you use wrestling moves where you grab this guy and then stab him in the neck. So – Yeah, we didn't talk about that at all. But there's a lot of just general wrestling to the ground in medieval combat because a lot of times knights are worth money. So if you can capture them alive – Well, also because the fact that you're trying to get into those joints – it's that's hard to do, but if you can just grab their arm, force it up, and then stab in there, like that makes it a lot. You don't easier. even have to stab. You just got to go. Hey, you feel that point in your armpit? That's my knife. You surrender now. Okay, I surrender. Good. Now you're going to give me lots of money so that you can go back to your castle alive. Like fun fact, yeah. England almost got bankrupted when they had to pay the royal bail on their king when he got captured coming back from the Crusades. <laughs> I didn't hear that one. But no, that, that idea that – I remember hearing that a long time ago was that unless you were very, very specifically trained for dual wielding, you were almost always better off with a free hand so that you could 
grab things. It was going to be better than having a, a, a dagger or a sword in that hand. So best example. Try patting your head and rubbing your belly at the same time. That's what you're trying to do while trying not to die. Yeah, exactly. All right. So let us know what you thought. This is a new episode format, so we might we're definitely gonna make changes as it goes. But a big factor in that is your guys' feedback. And with that, we're going to roll right into suggestions of the week. Hey, uh, I should probably be recommending one of my HEMA uh, channels I really like. But for some reason, none of them are coming to me right now. So I'm just going to – and because I've been moving stuff, I haven't had an opportunity to look at or play anything really. So I'm just going to recommend Pocket Rumble, which is a fun little Switch fighting game that I've been playing with uh, with my – you know, with people – uh, with my new girlfriend and stuff. And it's just a fun, like, very simple fighting game. There you go. And you can get it for, like, five bucks or something. So. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to make this theme that I'm going to suggest a YouTube channel, which you should definitely go check out after this. All right. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do all the things, because that is literally how we're keeping the lights on, is you guys going, hey, I have this awesome podcast I like called Geese with Shields. You should check it out. They just spent an hour talking about nights. Did you know? And then ramble off one of the fun facts here. And whatever platform you're currently listening to us on, whether it be SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Podcasts, Spotify, or iHeartRadio, thank you. If you'd rather us be on some other platform that would be more convenient, or you know someone who's like, yeah, I'd give that a listen if they were on this platform because that's where all my stuff currently is, well, tell us what that platform is, and we'll look into getting on there too. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable.